0: So we have a lengthy time of what the church calls ordinary time now between this Sunday and the beginning of Advent, and this year we are going to do some work together around the notion of spiritual formation over a lifetime, and in these weeks we'll take these first six weeks and be working with the life of Peter, and then over the remaining weeks we'll work together in First and Second Samuel and the life of David. Peter's last words in Second Peter, which we won't be reading together in this series, words that are born from genuine experience uh, really give us our aim for these weeks together. When Peter encouraged his readers to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that's what we're shooting for as we work together this ordinary time. Well, for me, one of the most encouraging things about the Bible is that it tells the story of regular people, not just faultless heroes. I mean, you just think about that for a minute. If you're just trying to do sort of nakedly apologetics, would you be uh, you know, revealing all the warts of some of the biggest heroes? You know, if you're just trying to win an argument the way we sometimes think the Bible is, you know, wouldn't you just be sort of putting your best foot forward all the time? You know, if you're trying to do marketing, like if the Bible's meant to market God, wouldn't you always be wanting to put your best foot forward? But it doesn't. And this encourages us, demonstrates to us that all, God always begins with us where we are, with all our faults, not where he or we wish we were. Well, Lord, if this just wasn't such an anxious time in my life, perhaps I could give you more attention. And we somehow think that God thinks that's true, or we think it's true. Well, Lord, this is a difficult time at work. Well, Lord, this is a difficult time in our family. This isn't, really, this isn't really a good place to start. I'm kind of bitter or I'm angry or stressed or depressed. And this is what makes it so important, this biblical notion that God always starts where we are, not where we think we should be or think that he thinks we should be. So starting where we really are, as Jesus did with Peter, is a core formational thought that explains, in my view at least, a big part of the biblical narrative. From Adam, where are you? Like, what's real here? Spiritually speaking, reality is always your friend. It's unclarity, it's, you know, like accidental deceit that's not our friend. But for God and Adam to both see what was real, to see what the beginning point was, was actually a very good thing. Adam, I see where you are, I see the covering, I see the shame of your nakedness, I see what's happening between me and you, and you and Eve, I get it, Adam, do you get it? Can you see that this is where we're starting from? Or think of the calling of Abraham, and think of Abraham's foibles that unfold in his story. God started where he was. Think of Jesus calling the 12. One day when I was feeling particularly bad about not being a great pastor, I realized that one third of Jesus's followers weren't very good. Right? You got Peter, sort of the, right, the sort of humorously speaking, constant screw up. You had James and John, who completely misunderstood who Jesus was in terms of power. And you had Judas, who betrayed him, four out of 12. You do the math. I mean, apparently, Jesus wasn't very good at picking them. or he starts with where people are. That's not fearful to him. It doesn't render him impotent. When you're real and say, but I'm feeling a little bitter about something in life. So this is an inconvenient time to pursue formation in Christ. That thought in your mind, that reality doesn't render God impotent. A, and B, it doesn't render him unloving. It's just what's real. And reality is always your friend. Now see, if we can't get that, we can't get that we and God can start with where we actually are. Because the notion that God starts with us where we are is also a really great promise. Because it alerts us to the notion that our starting point is not ultimately definitive. What's definitive is our movement towards Christ. And of course, Peter may be the clearest example in the New Testament of one who started from a significantly confused and mixed and halting place, but who through transformation gained by following Jesus became actually a father of the faith, right? This, this big screw up that we all sort of chuckle at or wonder about or whatever, you know, that kind of Jesus' you know, biggest screw up becomes one of the major founders of our faith. And this is a big encouragement because the transformation that Peter experienced is possible for us. And that I just want to say that again, the transformation that Peter experienced is possible for us. Now, I just want you to notice how you feel when I say that, not what you think, but what you feel. And for those of you, when you hear that, you feel a little guilty, you just have to set that aside. This is not something that's meant to make you feel guilty because you're not becoming Peter. But it's a wonderful and good invitation. But the kind of change that Peter experienced is active. It's not passive. And of course, there's a big theological debate that has revolved around this for five or 600 years. And we don't have time to get into that. But let me just say, it's Peter himself in 2 Peter 1 who said, make every effort. He doesn't say try to earn God's love. That's a very different thing making every effort is a very different thing than saying earn God's acceptance. He's simply saying that God started with me where I was. Now as I respond to that unearned love, I am beginning to add to my faith goodness. And to my goodness, I'm seeking, Peter said, to add knowledge. To my knowledge, I'm seeking to add self-control. And to my self-control, I'm seeking to add perseverance. Now let's just rhetorically ask Peter, why? Why, Peter? Why would you do such a thing? I mean, the moment God called you, you knew you were going to heaven when you died. Why would you seek to add these things? Why would this be a focus of your life? And perhaps Peter knows something that he's trying to teach us, that there is a way of life in God that we gently seek that is vastly superior to a life that is not filled with goodness and that is not filled with knowledge of God and that is out of control. Perhaps Peter knows that there's a life in alignment with God and his kingdom that is life as God intended for humanity. So now again, I just wanna say for those of you who might be concerned about this, this has nothing to do with earning. This is simple cooperation with the God who said, my eyes move to and fro throughout the whole earth. Or we might say, my eyes, God said, move to and fro over congregations of my people looking for those whose heart is completely mine so that I can strongly support them. That's all that's going on here. Or think of it this way. You have a a prodigal son squandering his life, and you have a looking down the path father. And the looking down the path father and the coming home son is what makes this happen. One without the other, it doesn't happen. Now that coming down the road son was not earning anything from the looking down the road father he was simply making himself present to him as i started getting ready for this and thinking about doing this series over the last few weeks i just realized afresh how much i think peter has always meant to me you know all the biblical writers mean something of course but there's always been something kind of i don't know encouraging about peter and encouraging that we can make it along our own journey. And I just thought for a moment about my journey and might say it to you. As a very young Christian, in a certain sort of religious context, my spiritual formation really revolved around kind of ought tos, kind of ought to moralisms, things that I should do or shouldn't do. And in hindsight, I realized that these were always contextual legalisms, right? So we are pretty clear that we shouldn't drop acid, um, we we're pretty clear that we shouldn't sleep with, you know, people we shouldn't sleep with, right? There were certain things that we we're pretty clear about, but there were lots of other things to do with economics and racism and all kinds of other things that never got into our contextual moralisms, right? So whenever you're doing moralisms, you can just be assured that they're contextually derived, right? They, they just sort of come and go in generations. And that was kind of the beginning of my path. Well, a spiritual crisis in the early 90s around 1990 is what made me discover spiritual formation. And so now for 26, 27, 28 years, I've been giving myself to this life. And now I would say, just to try to be honest, that I have, I would think now, a more mature sense of this, but a never-ending pursuit. I just am, I, There's just always something for me and God to do together as always and again I want you to try to get this at my best at my best I work this work uh in a childlike way not in a guilty way not in a performance oriented way at my best I'm able to live into what Jesus said that the kingdom of God is unto little children and that there is a there's meant to be a childlike quality to following Jesus right? The kind of childlike quality I had as a, you know, four, five, six-year-old learned to, learned to love for baseball. Or maybe for some of you as, as a young woman learned, uh, you know, a, a love for art or ballet or athletics yourself. But just think of that childlikeness. There was nothing angsty about that. It was a discovery process. It was very childlike. And this is available to us. And I thought again this week that when I think about the founding of Holy Trinity, Uh, It's for this very reason that Debbie and I founded this church. I wanted to see what would happen in a church that took formation serious, and that in a sense took it public, took it out of retreats, took it out of small groups. Not that those things are bad, but, you know, that's typically where we thought of doing formation. Like, Like, churches for regular people and people who want to do formation, they do these really deep things right? They do retreats or they have special small groups or something or special study groups. And I just wanted to experiment what would happen in a church that took formation public and in this case took the elements of an Anglican liturgical pattern and used these elements of liturgy as, as weekly spiritual practices. How might this add to a life of formation? And doing this, of course, with the hope that we would be transformed as individuals that families would be transformed, that friendships would be transformed. Uh, If you happen to have read my book on servant leadership, Our Character at Work, uh, you'll see that that's my burden in that book. How might the workplace be different if leaders were following Jesus for the sake of others? I mean, this is what gives my whole sense of myself and my whole, whatever ministry I have, this is what gives my sense of ministry any kind of coherence, that there would be the transformation of individuals and families and friendships in the workplace and society. Well, one way to read this passage in Peter is that it can feel like um, it can feel pretty moralistic. And Peter puts us in the context of our chosenness and in a context of being resident aliens, of being sojourners here on the earth. So, Peter's ethical demands, I just want you to hear, they flow from these realities and from his personal experience with Jesus. And I want you to try to catch this his observing of the other 11 struggling with this. Can you picture them just sort of walking together, and Peter going, "Oh my gosh, you know, James and John really blew it there." Or, "Man, I don't, I don't know about Judas." Or, "Right, can you just, you know, are we supposed to take a bag here and not take a bag?" You know, are, "Are we supposed to greet people along the way or not?" Right. Just think of that whole learning curve of the disciples. Peter watching that, and so what I want to do this morning is just focus on one of Peter's kind of holiness ideas. And that in the old King James used to say, gird up the loins of your mind. (laughs) Now, that's a fascinating phrase, right? Gird up the loins of your mind. That's, That's the Greek construction there. Well, we might say in our day today, roll up your sleeves you know, to, to gird up your loins, as you all know, meant to pull up these long flowing robes and tie them around your belt so you could run or do some sort of physical activity. And so the metaphor Peter here is using is obviously something like, now as you begin to work on your thoughts, you're going to have to roll up your sleeves. The NIV translates it as have minds that are alert and fully sober. And so what Peter's getting at here, and again, I just want you to picture his growth. And then hear him saying, really what I'm calling you to here is a serious, focused, active, energetic, and disciplined path of just noticing what's real in your mind. Now, you'll be best off if you can do that in a childlike way. You'll be best off if you can do that in almost a playful way. Just you and God doing your life together and noticing what's real about the life of your mind. Because all throughout the Bible, a transformed mind is a core move in formation, right? Just think of the famous passage in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Think of the great power that's given to uh, humans to, in the sense of Colossians 3.1, to set your minds, right? Paul can't say set your minds on things above if humans don't have the capacity to set their minds is it was one of the things that makes human beings, one of many things that makes human beings absolutely different from everything else in creation. The ability to target your mind, to select what we will allow or require our minds to dwell on. Because what we think or imagine or believe or guess, it sets the boundaries for what we can will or choose, and thus it's our thoughts that lead to decisions. So now I just want you to just see if you can just still your mind and almost see this like a movie playing out before you. Now just think of the times when Peter's thoughts moved his life. His brother Andrew says, Peter, I think we found the Messiah. Come, let me introduce you. Now the thoughts of Peter's mind dictated what he might do there. Think of him hearing Jesus teach hearing those parables that some of you still throw up your hands and go, what the heck do they mean? Right? Peter hearing these and having to engage with his mind or think about poor dear Peter seeing this vision of sheets being let down from heaven and him being told to do something that violates thousands of years of Jewish history. he had to think about that and wonder what this could possibly mean. Think of him at the transfiguration, walking on water, What thoughts made him draw his sword in the garden? Are you feeling me here? What would have been the state of his mind that then controlled his will and his decisions such that he then drew his sword? Or think about his thought life as Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? Now the reason thoughts are so important and so foundational to formation is that false thoughts about God lead to all manner of moral disaster. And true thoughts about God guide and sustain spiritual transformation. And then what happens is thoughts then begin to transform the details of my life. So look at me. I think you're more important than me. Therefore, I treat you that way. Did you hear that? I think that you're more important than me. Therefore, I treat you that way. Or not. Or not. Or I think I'm more important than you. And then you become a resource to me. You become something for me to use. See, this is thinking guides our behavior in an ironclad way, and this is why the Bible just brings it up frequently. So you might think that at the heart of what we call brokenness, right? You know how that, that word's been around Christianity now for a generation, you know, the, this kind of a brokenness. You know, if I, if I come to Debbie and say, hey, look, this thing's broke. What do I mean? Do I mean it's guilty? Do I mean it should be filled with shame? Or if I hand her some kitchen gadget that's just broke, what do I mean? I mean, it doesn't work. That's all it means, this doesn't work. And if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear this, Peter is simply saying spiritual life in Christ doesn't work when our thinking is broke. It just, it cannot work. It cannot work in any consistent way. There cannot be consistent growth until we start dealing with, not the shame-based or guilt-based aspects of our thought life that we sometimes do, but to just think of it as maybe like just dysfunction. It's just broken. It doesn't work, and therefore it hinders. So here's how this kind of thing works. We look at the state of the world, and we see the exploitation, for instance, of children and women men fighting for power in halls of power and on battlefields. We think of the many awful things we do to each other, you know, in families and neighborhoods, that sort of thing. Well, then it makes kind of sense to me that this is why so many human beings now feel deserted. Again, we tend to talk of it today in therapeutic terms as feelings of abandonment. And there's nothing wrong with that, but desertion I think is a little different angle on this. I wonder how many human beings How many billions of human beings right this second feel deserted? Exiles and refugees and middle class Europeans and Americans who feel deserted, that no one really cares about me. And our lives then begin to be filled with dread. Dread to just see another day come. Some of you have been there. Dread to even wake up to another day. Dread people at work. We dread financial failure. We dread sickness and old age and death. And our lives just begin to be filled with dread. And when that's our thought life, then what happens next is actually very logical. What happens next is thus I have to do everything I can to manage and secure my life. And I even dread failing at that. So now I've I've made the decision that I can't really trust God to deal with this horrible life. So now the, the next logical issue is therefore I must deal with it. But I even dread that I'll fail at that. But we see in Peter, meeting the Good Shepherd, experiencing the initiative and grace of God, his thinking begins to change. Now just think of Peter befuddled at the transfiguration or drawing his sword or trying to walk on water and just all the thought processes that surround that and kind of picture the penny dropping at the moment where Peter realizes there's nothing really to dread. That if I take serious the life of God I saw in Jesus, if I take serious Jesus' teachings, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. When he reminds himself in his thought life that Peter, you will inherit a kingdom that can never be shaken, Peter realizes I don't have to live in dread. And the penny drops for him in the sense that this is not just an idea, but it passes through his thought life and becomes to him an experienced reality with God. And then he can rehear Jesus at the very beginning, the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry, don't be anxious about anything. And I can always just see that, that switch being flipped in, in Peter's mind when those kind of things go from kind of confusing moralisms to an invitation to a real way of life. Oh, there's paths that lie before me. I am my shepherd. I am my shepherd and I must secure my life. Or the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not be in want. And allow uh, along one path, Lies the invitation of non-anxiousness and peace, righteousness, joy, all those adjectives about the kingdom. Along one path lies that, and as you arrange your thoughts along that path, you can go. But as we allow our thoughts to go down the path of, I must be my shepherd, and I must care for myself because the world has deserted me, and I can't really trust anybody else. Therefore, I must do that. And so this is what helps us get past mere moralisms to this beautiful invitation to a different way of life. And what we wanna see in these weeks together is that we begin to experience this kind of formation by moving from mere profession of Jesus to apprenticeship to him. That we come to the place where we think so highly of him that we place our genuine confidence in, believing and trusting that Jesus is both right and good, and that he has a good, no harmful plan for us, it's only then that we could actually become his student. And again, this is where my, at least for me, my imagination with Peter feels so rich and alive, is I see those moments where Peter goes, master. Now again, just think of the quality of his thought life. The I don't mean quality like moral, immoral, the nature. Think of the nature of his thought life. When that penny drops, master, or rabbi, you're my teacher. I've become your student, or better yet, Lord, you're the Messiah. And just, again, think of the nature of his thought life when those things become real to him. Well, this morning, as we have a moment of quiet, you might want to bow your head, close your eyes, sort of whatever it takes to still yourself. And maybe together we could wonder, is there a recurring thought in your life, or maybe group of thoughts, a way of thinking, that hinders your walk with God? If you were to just get honest this morning, is there a pattern of thinking in your life that makes trust in Jesus or your practical goodness towards others difficult? Now if you can observe what that is, then as we've said, you can start with where you really are this morning. You can start with whatever's real, and just give yourself to Jesus as His student, and take a moment to invite the Spirit to go with you into apprenticeship with Jesus starting from whatever is real in your current thought life.